What affects income mobility? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Vincent Geloso. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso. Vince is an assistant professor of economics at George Mason University, who obtained his PhD in economic history from the London School of Economics. He was previously postdoctoral researcher at Texas Tech University, a visiting assistant professor of economics at Bates College, and assistant professor of economics at King's University College. His research interests are at the intersection between North American economic history, population economics, and political economy. And he has published more than 60 articles in journals like Public Choice, Economic Inquiry, Contemporary Economic Policy, British Medical Journal Global Health, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Explorations in Economic History, just to name a few. Vince, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on, as always, Vince. So, and as you very well know, we basically are you episode- sure about that? <laughs> we'll, we'll see, I guess. So maybe <laughs> I'm speaking too soon. But as you very well know, we base each episode on a question and go over the answer and conversation takes us. So today, our question and theme really is what affects income mobility. And I think the best way to get into this is to start with some concepts and basics first, and then I actually want to go through some of your recent papers. So let's get right into it. You and I have previously talked together about income inequality, of course, and I encourage our listeners to go into the backlog and see those recordings. But today we're talking about income mobility. So right off the top, can you quickly define income mobility and differentiate it from income inequality, just to set the stage here? Okay, so there's two types of income mobility. The first one is what we would call absolute. The question would be from a period in time, say now, and 10 years from now, has your income increased by whatever proportion or even like in dollar terms or just yes or no did it increase? That's absolute mobility. Then there is relative mobility, which asks, given everyone's increase, did you increase more or less than everybody else? And here the idea is the of relative mobility is we're interested in whether somebody who is close to the bottom of the income distribution rises up over time? Do they get a chance to climb up to higher levels of income? So is someone who was born in the poorest 5% has a chance to becoming like the median person? So it's, are the poor enjoying income gains that are greater than the average person or the rich person? And income mobility does speaks to the ability of a society to offer chances to uh, stand up from a from your initial position. How does that relate to inequality? Well, inequality is different from income mobility, but not different in a way that they're not connected. So uh, income inequality could be very high, but you could still have high relative mobility, whereas some of the people who are rich now will return and regress to the mean and people who are poor now will exceed the mean in the subsequent period. So you can, they're different. So it's a, it's possible that income inequality rises while income mobility, relative income mobility rises. And obviously income, absolute income mobility also increases. But there is also a link where we expect some form of a negative relationship between income inequality and income mobility. 
the idea being that people closer to the lower income levels of society are dealt a lesser hand and are less able to make investments in themselves just by material privation. So think about there's a large society of a large share of society that is absolutely poor. They can't invest in education because their privation is so extreme that bare survival is at risk. Ergo, like I'm exaggerating for the sake of argument, but their survival is so at risk that they cannot make investments into things that would increase their income. They're just trying to get by. Here, inequality would be an issue to some degree. Also, it would speak to the fact that richer people can seize opportunities that are presented to them. So the idea is that there is a connection between inequality and income mobility as it speaks to the ability of whether or not to rise up. Uh, at least that's how it's presented in the literature. I have some important caveats to this, uh, but there is a good. This is there's a good reason to believe that on its face, such a mechanism should exist. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems like just like with income inequality, same thing. And I I feel like a bit of deja vu from our previous conversation too, in a good way. Just like income inequality, income mobility, it is very key to understand that absolute and relative situation too, because just like when we talked about income inequality, someone could be absolutely poor. Uh, or they could be like relatively poor. Yes. I think I think it seems like it's important for us to keep that in our head on both sides of the mobility and the inequality situation, this absolute and relative situation. Yes, because there could be weird cases where uh, you could have rising relative income mobility, but falling absolute mobility. So if society was so a great episode of this is the Great Depression. Uh, in the Great Depression, there was a lot of income losses. Uh, over a short period of time, but there was a, a massive fall in uh, in incomes for for everyone uh, during that period. So you had a weird situation where you had falling inequality, falling absolute mobility, and ambiguous effects on, or at least at face value, ambiguous. We, the data is not perfect for the, that period, but you had relatively stable relative mobility. So. Mm-hmm. There, there is a difference of, of the two concepts. Uh, I would put a high weight on absolute mobility as the first thing we should care about because it speaks to the ability of people to rising above uh, above like absolute poverty and far beyond and being accessing basically uh, meeting basic needs. But it would be stupid to assign no weight to relative mobility because we do care that uh, rich and poor can seize opportunities to the same degree, right? We don't want a society where uh, by dint of birth, your set of choices are smaller because you're born poor than somebody who's born rich and has access to more options. I think everyone agrees to this, that there is some weight of these that should exist. I would place absolute mobility first in terms of importance, relative mobility second, but I'm not like what I wouldn't give it a zero weight. Right. But the problem is, is what a lot of people are confused. And this is probably where my research comes in is actually we don't know on net what determines relative mobility, because most of the attention has gone to that inequality link 
that I've described, whereas I argue that there's much more important factors that play in. Mm-hmm. And, and continuing that train of thought, actually, if, if you put more weight and you think it's more important to understand absolute income mobility over relative income mobility, when it comes to income inequality or income mobility, I, I know they're very different, but if you sort of had to rank that in and of itself, would you say that um, income mobility itself is more of a, an indicator of a healthy society versus the inequality at yes. any given period of time? Oh yes, oh yes. I would put much more weight on mobility. So I was I was just talking about ranking the two types of mobility. But if you had if asked me to add in uh, income inequality, I would put an income income inequality as low on the list. Largely, by the way, a lot of the times when people talk about income inequality and the damages it does to a society's fabric. Now I don't agree with their, those arguments. You can but you can find them in like stuff like Wilkinson and Tickett's book which is a horrible book, but what they're describing when they talk about inequality and all its ill effects, they're actually talking about income mobility. They're just not calling it that. Also, income mobility is hard to measure because you need really rich data sets. And until very recently, we didn't have extremely detailed longitudinal databases of people uh, that covered like multiple sources of income or wealth. Uh, so it's relatively recent that we that we have great data from multiple countries to do so. Whereas, uh, so people who before were using income inequality as a proxy for income mobility, I think most people would agree that income mobility is more important than income inequality. And when they use income inequality, it's largely to, as a stand-in for ah. what they care about. Uh, and that stems from, but I have a, a different view on this, which is actually there's even a more greater weight to be assigned, not just for other purposes, is that you can have rising inequality in a society. And that would be totally acceptable to most people because they perceive everyone as having had a chance to rise up. So you can look at the literature, for example, there is a large literature on toleration so that we ask surveys to people and we ask them, give me your perception of the income distribution and we'll then compare it with the actual income distribution. And what you find is that uh, very often people get it wrong, but the degree to which they get it wrong differs a lot according to societies. In very economically free societies, the gap is 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 much wider, and the interpretation that's given to that uh, is that uh, people perceive their tolerance for inequality in this case is much greater because they do perceive as that everyone had a chance to rise up. So if, for example, you find a billionaire inventor who made something for you, well, he didn't steal it from you. He actually created value. And it's his own it's his own value that he brought, not just the skill, the value he made for others by trading on what he was able to do that made people better off. And so people don't see that as as damaging. So the 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 real the real consideration is are does everyone perceive that there was a fair that the outcomes that were generated were part of a fair process, fair based on on skills and added value by individuals. They'll give a small way to did he start from an advantageous position already, but they won't give much more weight to that. They won't generally people on average will not hate a person who becomes rich in what is perceived to be a relatively fair process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's but that fairness then is the debate about what people call right. fairness that actually needs to become 
better study because then people do some hand waving and say, oh, you know, it's, that's not fair. So we have to wait, wait, whoa, hold up. Right. And that's where we need to like have a, a stricter conversation. Right. Yeah. And it would seem as well like it, it wouldn't just be about the perception of, for instance, billionaire X that did ABC and now he's a billionaire. And whether that was fair, it's probably also their perception of whether or not, at least theoretically, they have this someone observing that also has the chance to, to do that themselves or at least other people do in the community based on the actual uh, ability to move. Cause I, I could imagine a situation where someone sees a billionaire getting there in a fair way, but if other people don't have that opportunity, then the whole situation becomes quote unquote unfair. Right. So yeah. it's, it has to, I guess yeah. income mobility is, I guess something that at least from what I understand from you, it needs to be something that er- it affects everybody, not just a certain class or section of people. Exactly. Exactly. That there must be a feeling that the process is to some degree perceived as fair. Now, again, I am putting emphasis on perceived, right. Uh, because the it's the impression of how we will relate to the gaps we observe and whether or not we deem that some policy responses are necessary uh, to that. And I'm going to, my argument, I, I, I keep presaging this, so like that I know we're keeping this for the second half of the show, but the, the point I make is that actually when you understand the origins of people's reaction or their unease towards a gap, it's not the inequality or like the the initial endowments generally it has to do with the institutional settings that matter much more than the the perception of well he had an advantageous position to start with generally people actually do put a very small weight on that because when we observe other society the societies that are tolerant of very high perceived inequality are the ones where we observe high mobility but we also observe something else, which I'll keep mentioning later on in the second mm-hmm. half, which is high economic freedom. Yep. And you're exactly right. We are going to get to just in a little bit, actually, like what actually affects income mobility and so on. But I just have a couple more technical questions for you as we get into the concept. So and, and just to hammer it home, especially for people that either don't deal in this topic every day or haven't seen the kind of stats and the kind of data that, that you get to work with when you do this kind of stuff. So um, obviously, this kind of thing is measured longitudinally because you have to figure out if people are mobile over time. But yeah. but just to be 100 percent sure, because, of course, when in the sort of quote-unquote mainstream if you will or when politicians talk about income mobility obviously they're all trying to encourage upward mobility but when it comes to this data and the kind of thing you're looking at it, it is it, is it both upward and downward uh that we're looking at when yes. it comes to mobility so really it's about how people move up up and down really is the data you deal with right yes so there's there's three ways it has been that used to be done a lot until we had what is known as longitudinal administrative database where we could merge a lot of people is we would take tax records and we take everyone in say 1990 and then we compared them in say 2010 right so 20 years later and in the process we wouldn't we would not we would consider how this group evolved relative to the rest of society so the rest of society can increase can fall but we're checking these individuals how much did their income rise and in that situation you can find out you don't need to you you can't be interested whether or not people like actually fall or rise over time like there is you don't need to care about the rich where his direction comes because the data will tell you automatically just from the absolute income because if let's say the top 20% in 1990 got a 500% increase in income so their income increased by a factor of 5 uh and the poor saw their income increase by a factor of 10 then you know that the poor have moved up the income distribution relative to the rich and that is enough Right. We generally from those, it's sufficient. Uh, The limitation from this 
is that generally you are uh, you're you're looking at a group of people without any other changes in sites. So you're abstracting other things, mm. and you're also omitting questions about well, why are you in that condition at that start point in 1990? And that brings the second category of study, which is uh, they're known as intergenerational income elasticities. So what we do is we would take it doesn't have to be intergenerational. You can just take it relative to an initial starting point. But the idea is you take a person's income now. You explain it by the level of income of your parents, of his parents. The idea from this is that there will be a constant when you make that estimation. There will be a constant that emerges, which will tell you absolute mobility. So what's the average growth for society as a whole? Then the effect of your income's parent is relative mobility, right? How much did you move relative to that mean I've just described before? So here we would expect that the uh, the coefficients are generally going to be, they're always going to be negative. And a larger negative means that, uh, uh, that you're going to be more inherit, you're going to inherit more the status of of your parents. Sorry, a, a smaller negative. Sorry, right. I, keep, I have to say it. A smaller, like closer to zero, a negative that's closer to zero. I keep this as a mistake. I always do in language. A, 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 an estimate closer to zero means that you are much less, you're much more immobile than one that's high because it means that you can move really easily along the ladder, which means that the predictive power of your parents' income will explain very little your change relative to the average. Hmm. And and when you're, I'm just very curious. That's get, the way, but in that, but but but, but the, the virtue in that case is we're actually we're blending everyone, so we're allowing uh, people at the top, born at the top to see if they increase a lot and people at the bottom, how much they increase. So it, it, and it, it omits the question of absolute mobility allows us to focus only on relative. Uh, and it allows that setup also has this virtue. It allows for growth to happen in the period. And we're actually getting a discussion of who enjoys economic growth during that period more rich or poor, those who were born rich and how much can they escape through that growth? the uh who enjoys the fruits of growth depending on their initial income condition mm-hmm. and when you're and when you're dealing with or their parents when you're when you're dealing with intergenerational mobility and looking at these types of pictures i'm just very curious about to get into the the nerdy weeds for a second like is are, are there like different kinds of data sets out there like are there actual studies out there that follows like one or two or a bunch of families over time or is it usually just like you know big data that you're looking at which is like you know generation x to millennial and then of course you're dealing with that like are there or is it kind of like a mix of the different kind no, of no generally what happens is we uh there's a lot of sometimes we have to do approximations, but very more often than not, what we do is we have some administrative databases. So this is something that we are able to do now more and more thanks to really rich administrative databases. So we can essentially find a person's income now, track it over time, but we can also have identifiers in the data of who their parents are. Hmm. So we can match in earlier data. Now, in terms, it looks easy to do, but Generally, like just to give people an idea of how painful it is to do that data assembly and how much it's a thing of recent progress in computing power, uh, you need to like 
for example, when you report your income on your taxes, it's actually not your entire income. Right? There's a lot of things that are not going to be included that are not going to be reported. There's also the fact that you, when you're reporting, for example, you're reporting as a tax unit. So right. if I report, like, so I'm in the United States, if I report for myself, I actually report, we, my wife and I are doing a, a joint, uh, a joint tax return. We're considered a tax unit, but we're not, but we're two individuals. Single households have a single individuals. So how will we count mine and hers? Are we going to divide my income? Like, so my wife is actually a student now. So that's like the reason why I'm using this as an example. Uh, is my wife earning half my income in that situation? Or is she earning the zero that she's earning as a student? So if we average the two of us, then it would look as if like when she gets a job that there's very little mobility. Whereas I, when I, she gets a job, I actually see an increase in my income because we're dividing right. that average by a greater a greater number now by two. But in reality, I didn't have an increase. So it's foiling the, the, the computation when you were using that data. You generally needed to do some form of mixing with other databases. So you would find some uh, uh, databases of, of transfers you've received. Uh, and then you could identify properly what is the income of the second person within the tax unit. And then you can create actually like precise data. Then there's also stuff like in-kind payments. So governments give you in-kind transfers, which are not on tax returns. So in the United States, there's SNAPs. Uh, I don't know if there's in-kind transfers in Canada. I can't think to picture one. Uh, but if there is, you need to count it. But then you need access to a third database. Right. So this effort of being able to track people's actual income and actual living conditions now requires merging large amount of disparate data and correctly and uniquely identifying each person properly. So this is why like it's a development. There's been like great strides in say 2014 in the measurement of income mobility across generations or across uh, across smaller periods of time uh, because the computing power is now available to create these really rich databases that track people either over time or relative to a starting point such as their parent, which means you actually need to identify two people mm. in that situation and uniquely identify them. So you need to find my mom's called Danielle Lenoir, and there's multiple Danielle Lenoir. You have to identify her properly. So generally, this is why we need like additional databases. You need to be able to find features that are going to allow you to uniquely identify. And that's not something you do, as we say in, in Quebecois French, à la mitaine. It's not something you do by hand. You need really hard computing power right. to generate large enough databases. Yeah, no. And I, I really thank you for going through that on the technical level, because honestly, like I, I personally am very interested and have like a appreciation for good, like income inequality, income mobility work. So like, because, you know, there's so much like, uh, you know, at the sort of uh, very superficial op-ed or media level that's often talked about when it comes to income inequality and mobility, you know, like, so I, I, I just wanted to kind of get that out there and basically say, you know, there are tons, tons of things, you know, when people might say something like, you know, the rich get rich or the poor get poorer, for instance, it, it's possible that that's what's happening, but we can actually get into the actual data seriously and see if that's actually the case. Right. So and that how mobile people are. Yeah, so. that one that one is is the, the the least true of the myths that circulate out there. Just to make it clear. Yeah. Uh, even in the worst case scenario of societies with rising inequality right now, 
the poor are still seeing increases in living standards across the board. Uh, in fact, like there's a very famous paper by Art Cray and forget his name, but the, the study is known as Cray and Dollar. And what they did is, is essentially assess growth in income for the poorest 20% versus the average growth for society. And the correlation is like nearly one to one, like not exactly, but nearly. So generally, if you find that the the average society grows by 7% a year in average income, the poor are also going to have at least 7%, if not a bit more. Mm -hmm. So the relation is really, 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 really tight. Uh, and it's not an inverse relationship. It's literally nearly one for one, if not a bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it's there's no argument for the poor are falling. Sorry, a bit less than one. Sorry, uh, the poor are like seeing falling income. That's that's horseshit. Literally horseshit. Where there is growth, the poor are actually enjoying some of that growth. Maybe not evenly, but they are. So there's no there's no sign in any Western country of falls in the bottom. Right. Uh, it just not rises as big. Right. And actually, that's a great place. Then, then people at the top. Yeah, I know that's a great place to take a break. So we'll do that right now because I have a bunch of other things I want to jump into based on exactly that. So we'll stop here. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Tasks. I'm speaking with Vince Geloso today. So, so Vince, I think the first half was great. We really explored both at a conceptual and even getting into a technical level, uh, income inequality, in income mobility, how that's measured, and so on and so forth. I thought that was great. We were just ending the first half of our chat about, I, I kind of just threw out there as a as the, one of the slogans, and you sort of took it and ran with it, which was the rich get richer, poor get poorer kind of thing. And I think it was interesting you took us through like that. You're basically summarizing and charting that as sort of a, a myth sort of statement that there's a huge misperception about that kind of thing. And when I personally talk to people, even at a very high level about income mobility or the state of social justice in society, essentially, I, I often talk about what I want to talk about next, actually, with you, which is um, if we encourage, I often encourage people to get off the sort of complete material discussion, although that's very important, and into like sort of also the social mobility discussion. So I want to now talk about what affects income mobility. And I'm going to see yep. how we can jump into what is ultimately um, typically listed as the things affecting income mobility. But ultimately, you you sort of really zone in on economic freedom, uh, which is a whole package yep. of ideas. So we can get into that. But but at a high level, why are you so interested in this economic freedom point and how it affects income mobility? And what have you sort of found in a general level as you've been studying this kind of thing? So the people who are concerned about income inequality affecting income mobility, so that the rich have, by virtue of their higher wealth and income, have greater sets of opportunity open to them. It is essentially a demand-side argument. 
It essentially argues that the rich have greater income, ergo they can demand more opportunities. I actually have a supply side argument that says, actually, if you have really good high quality institution, you're actually gonna create much more incentives for the poor to do things, to seize opportunity. And I use a microcosm in one of my papers that got published where I find a way to actually illustrate the point. And then I found, I did other papers that empirically generalize from this. And the microcosm is Olympics. Olympics really speak to that logic. Why? Because the set of skills that you need at the Olympics is innate, and it is independently distributed from income. Rich people and poor people who have skills for certain Olympics, say by virtue of just being tall, are going to be, that skill is going to be independently distributed from income. Right. You can see it, by the way, in basketball mm. or in football. You'll see very little gradient of the initial social economic condition of high performing athletes to to their initial income. And so you would say that, OK, the innate talent is is randomly distributed by virtue of its innateness. But the development of these talents is not. Uh, it is costly. And because the cost is so high, you would expect areas with higher inequality to not be able to send all of their or their best innately talented mm. by virtue of inequality. So here you would have a mechanism by which you could identify how inequality affects outcomes because it allows only the rich to develop their their skill sets. The point I make is that in societies that are highly economically free, where property rights are secured, you're actually creating an incentive to appropriate the fruits of efforts to develop those talents. So you're actually creating a set of incentives. You may also, by the way, develop accidentally uh, charitable groups, people who are rich enough to share backwards, to help out people who are talented talented to, to rise up. Uh, you're also, say, by virtue of having lower tax rate, you're increasing the net return. And since for the poor, the same dollar gains from, say, winning a medal, sponsorships, uh, equipments, uh, prestige, is worth so much more to them at the margin by virtue of them being lower on the income ladder. The, in the incentive effect, the supply side effect of safe property rights, low taxes, is going to be so much stronger for them. So there's two forces that are playing against each other. The effect, the negative effect of inequality, which reduces the ability of the poor to seize their opportunities. But then there's a supply effect where actually you're increasing the rewards. So the point we make in that first article is that in free societies, we should expect a, we should expect maybe no effect of inequality on, say, winning medals in Olympics. Whereas in unfree society, where property rights are not secure, where there's prohibition on trade, where et cetera, et cetera, you will find that equality has an effect because that other mitigating force is not present. So in that first article, that is exactly what we're able to find. For economically free societies, you will find that they win medals in greater proportion despite higher level of income inequality, suggesting that the upward mobility, right, the chance of somebody who is uh, innately talented, right, so we're running, we're ruling out differences in talent. We're saying the innately talented who are poor get a chance to try and that is observed in the fact that the country wins more medals mm -hmm. right so that's that was the microcosm and it got me started on saying okay so there must be 
some form of compensating mechanism that exists. And we want to know on net, because the argument that people make that inequality has an impact on income mobility is not theoretically invalid. It has theoretically good foundations. Just in price theory, people who have a, a lower budget, I have a higher budget constraint that they're, they have more income, they have more choices by definition, whereas people who are poor have fewer options. Right. Right. Now, the issue is, my point is actually, but the set of incentives that I'm suggesting about institution is that it actually offers marginally greater returns to the poor than the rich. So that will mitigate the effect of disadvantageous starting points. And so in the first paper, uh, me and Justin Calais, what we did was we made the argument that there was a direct effect of economic freedom, so property rights, low taxes, uh, low regulation, that actually allowed people to rise up relative to their parents. So we're looking at relative income mobility in that one. So we're looking at it directly rather than through this microcosm. And we also say that there's an indirect effect. Societies that are economically free are going to generate economic growth. And that economic growth is going to create resources for everyone, but that they're especially more valued for people at the bottom. Plus, there's a specialization effect, which is that in richer societies, you get a chance to, because you're richer, there's more option to trade, there's more option to specialize, which means that there are more opportunities to be unique and rise up. That gives you more paths towards upward mobility. And what me and Justin say is, Let's try and weight, on average, the effect of economic freedom, its direct and indirect effect, against the effects of income inequality. And what we find is that, on average, income economic freedom outperforms by sizable margins, mm. outperforms uh, income inequality's effect. Uh, and in fact, this is probably biased up downwards. Because inside inside the economic freedom index, there's five components. One of them is size of government. And the size of government has ambiguous effect because you can do redistribution, which will help people rise up, but you can also tax, which means that you're reducing the returns to rising up. When we exclude the size of government, economic freedom punches out economic income inequality by like two to one. Mm -hmm. uh, and the effect is stronger for uh, secure property rights, low regulation, free trade, and sound monetary policy. So no like no crazy inflation bullshit. Uh, that matters so much more to the poor, and it creates much more upward mobility than in unfree society. And the reason, the point being that if economic freedom, this institutional mechanism, is the one that kicks in much more importantly and will matter for our for our tolerance of observed inequality level because in highly highly fresh highly uh, as i said at the beginning a highly free uh, sorry societies that tolerate apparently unequal income distribution are also societies that are highly economically free and the point we make is they're also the societies that have higher income mobility the suggestion here being that because there's higher income mobility, because of economic freedom, we're willing to tolerate what seem like unequal distributions because we perceive them as being based on actually the value provided to others through trade. And we're not offended by the level of disparity that we observe. We see that everyone seems to be uh, had a fair chance at the process 
and the results either emerge from differences in tastes or uh, or differences in actual like uh, an actual like genuine effort that are put in. Mm-hmm. And and I just want to push it a little bit more into the idea of like different components of like economic freedom itself for a very specific reason, because I think that uh, in many cases, especially when it comes to this type of political economy, people often sort of unfairly have this perception that like an economist is, you know, dealing with, you know, trade and commerce and just stats all the time. But I, I want to kind of really push in further into this economic freedom, institution quality, like equality before the law, all this package of ideas, because this, this is very important, because I think this is where um, the, the economics that and the kind of thing you're talking about very well connects with all the things that other people say they are very concerned with. They think maybe the folks that are more focused on economics are not as concerned with this stuff, but it plugs in very well, and I want to emphasize this. So, for example, use the Olympics as sort of this microcosmic thing. But uh, if we move to like a, a different type of example, like in the in the macro, or you know, some people would say, well, apply that to like you know current social situations. For example, is it fair to do like a metaphor, like if you have someone starting in a, in a very low income area or a low income neighborhood in their life, kind of thing? You know, do we get into the examples of stuff like you know how? Um, you know, policing is affecting them differently and how the court system yes. might view them institutionally kind of thing. All this types of stuff, whether they're being treated the same, for example, institutionally as someone with a higher income or not, this is all kind of into that economic freedom and fairness of institutions argument, as you said, more than just where they're starting. And I, I think I always find that this is an area that very well connects to a lot of these, um, for lack of a better term, social justice type conversations. And a lot of people miss that point is this economic freedom thing goes beyond just, you know, my freedom to buy something from you. There's a lot more bundled in there. Okay. Uh, there's multiple things in, in what you say uh, that I want to disentangle. It's, they're related, but I, I want to cut them in pieces yeah. so that we can easily swallow them. Oh yeah. That, that's my element. point that there's a lot there, which is, which is great for the conversation. Yes. I, I would, say that the first thing that people generally confuse is that they're in the relationship from income inequality to to income uh, sorry from institutions to income inequality is that what we really care about is are we affording so when people are like offended by inequality let me rephrase it like this when they're offended by inequality they're offended by the fact that somebody has the upper hand now What's the upper end by just like some of you say it's by dint of birth, but sometimes it's by dint of regulation. Uh, so uh, if the state decides to regulate my craft more and say I'm regulated, but after I've entered, well, then you've protected me from competition. It makes my income higher because I'm, I'm shielded from competition that would improve maybe like people who are better than me, but the people who may be better than me or better professors than me. I doubt it. I'm a great economist. But uh, assuming that there was somebody who was better than me, like I'm being totally unmodest here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that person, if I was by regulation, I would be keeping that person out of the market. And I would be making that person poor. Now, I'm, I have a upper hand, but I have the upper hand because I already have prestige and I can convince governments to do regulations that protect me from competition and that's a bad inequality. Well, then you can translate the same thing to income mobility. If we say that I got a better set of options to rise up because I'm rich, yeah, I have the upper end. But I also have the better set of options because, well, my parents 
their jobs were protected from competition and they could do investments and they got higher income. They got to invest in me more. Whereas the person who was trying to compete with my parents didn't get access to these resources because he was locked out of a market in which he had a skill that he could contribute more value than he otherwise would have in the suboptimal choice he was forced into. Uh, you can link the two together very well. The idea being that economists and people who debate this tend to assume that the ones we get by birth are entirely the endowments we have initially. Whereas I argue that if we had to like do not infinite regress, but we have to go back, the origins are largely disproportionately institutionally related by the number of legal hurdles and barriers and paths that we block to people at the bottom and the amount of protection we afford to people at the top in, in terms of regulation. So you can think of, well, since I'm in the U.S., it works really well. Policing uh, does indeed. Uh, so I think of the how now I'm not in the uh, like defund the police kind of crowd, but I do agree that incentives matter. And for cities, uh, when you put like uh, quotas for funds to be raised by putting traffic tickets, well, who... Uh, who drives more, who does X, who does Y, or enforcing, like, so we can think of Eric Brown from a few years ago, who was who was selling, and I'm going to use my libertarian air quote here, because even though I'm an economist, I'm also, I don't lie about the fact that I'm in the libertarian camp, uh, smuggling illegal cigarettes, quote, unquote, uh, well, the regulations the rewards from breaking the law was probably bigger because of the regulations, but then it meant that the government actually stepped in on that person for much more and essentially hurt that person in the end. Uh, the case of, I don't know if it's Eric Brown or Michael Brown, but it was in New York. Uh, but here it's a case of it's the, the government's interventions actually leads it by incentives to act much far, to have a heavier burden on people at the bottom from its actions. And the point I make is actually, if we were to do a first do no harm approach to government intervention on distribution, we would actually probably have net improvements. We protected property rights if we deregulated uh, uh, occupations. The one area where I'm less comfortable is things that speak to redistribution of income. I think there is a case that the effect of income redistribution is relatively small on economic growth or on effort, but regulations, unsafe property rights, uh, barriers to free trade, uh, occupational licensing, mm -hmm. all of these are clearly detrimental to upward mobility. So things that intervene in the functioning of markets directly, by not by altering prices, but by actually like creating barriers to economic activity, they're the ones that actually that create the bad inequalities that people find unattractive and the bad limitations to income mobility that people also find unattractive, but they're not, the, but they're disproportionately much larger than those that speak to the ones you get by your parents were rich or your trust fund. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, and I, and I think like um, I think when you walk through the kinds of things you just said, and also think of mental for those that are very concerned about inequality too, and you walk through a couple of mental experiments, like you mentioned income redistribution, for example, like one of the mental experiments, and I've actually said this to someone one time too about like when it comes to economic freedom, that let's just let's just hold, for example, um, you know, all, all the banks in the United States, let's just give them in this thought experiment a a one hundred percent racism meter, and then as well. The state also disallows, for example, people starting their own banks just for fun. Well, if you take a bunch of money from, for instance, someone that's rich in that society and give it to a person of color at that point, uh, great, they have a bunch more income in their pocket, maybe or a redistributed check. But what they can do with that money is entirely dependent on their freedom of the institutions after. If, for instance, they can't open yes. a bank account, can't get a job, and the state says they can't you know, go start their own business or go open their own bank, great, we had a nice income inequality maybe uh fix for maybe six months let's say but someone is completely screwed over on the social side and the income mobility side over time so i think it's interesting to hold those things constant because as you said when it comes to especially redistribution of income and all that great stuff which is always sort of taking a lot of the spotlight when it comes to income discussions you you could theoretically have a situation where we throw a bunch of money around a bunch of different people but if you're not letting them be free to do what they want they're not going to be mobile in life yeah, this speaks to something I, I've been saying from now a decade. I see two types of distinction of how I criticize governments. There is criticism of interventions and criticism of, distribu- of redistribution. The evidence on redistribution of its, of its ill effect pretty much is small in the sense that the effects, the negative effects seem much smaller than originally pointed out. And that, like, there's a great book by Peter Linder. It's called Growing Public. Uh, Peter Linder is a, is, has become a friend of mine, uh, which is, I see him as a mentor. But Peter is a social democrat. I'm not. I'm a classical liberal, and I don't even hide the fact that I am a classical liberal. But Peter has convinced me that the effect of redistribution on aggregate economic activity is very small. And there's positive effects, in fact, on allowing people near the bottom to rise up. And there's good price theory mechanisms for this. Uh, but the point that you make is actually particularly important. It speaks of the first thing I said, intervention. Intervention is there. It's very clear that governments are messing up markets in ways that are sometimes directly visible, but sometimes indirectly, like they're invisible at first hand, but then you can realize them much later because they block opportunities to rise up. And one of the criticisms actually I made to, to Peter when we were when we were talking because we did a paper together on inequality, and I pointed out to Peter is like, well, technically your case would actually be stronger if governments went in and deregulated occupational licensing, if they eliminated barriers to they eliminated trade tariffs, if they secured property rights better, if they eliminated housing restrictions, if they eliminated. Uh, land use policies, if they allowed people to move, to open businesses more easily. What you're suggesting is that people would be able to seize a greater set of opportunity. So if anything, there's like a case for being, uh, and that would like be like a Milton Friedman kind of version of, you can have redistribution programs like a negative income tax, which is what he argued for, which is a form of guaranteed income. I, I just think it's naive to my criticism of Peter's, by the way, parent tangent. Uh, I think the criticism is that generally the ideal welfare state, which would have the beneficial effect and very little of the downsides, is just 
cannot ever be achieved because it, it requires us to have an idealistic view of government, which I do not hold. Uh, okay, and right, right, right. Make abstraction of public choice consideration. But in itself, it's not the welfare state is not the hardest, the most dramatic thing that happens in terms of social economic outcomes, regulations, barriers to trade, uh, violations of property rights, far more damaging uh, in the long run. Uh, and on income mobility as well. So if anything, which you should care about, if you really care about income mobility, is you want to have freer markets. You want to have very light regulation. You want to have very secure property rights. You want to have strong constraints on government intervention. You want free trade. You want free capital markets. You want to allow markets to work, to give people opportunities that they can seize and visualize more easily true specialization true trade this is what you really want that effect if you allow markets to be free will outweigh really by two to one uh the effect of of of, of income inequality i think that the best example of this is my second paper that i pitched to you for, for today which is with james dean and in this one we look at canadian income mobility but not over generations but within five-year windows so we track a person from 1992, say, to 1997, and we observe uh, three things. is Did their income rise? Did uh, How much of a proportional increase in income did they have? And did they have a relative rise? So did they increase in deciles? And the idea of looking at Canadian provinces instead of nations is that Canada as a whole is a country with really, really, really good property rights. Hey, we, we may have things that I think are incorrect. You can think about like the, the the level of protection that's afforded to people on reservations, but it will matter to our conversation because on reservations, uh, the uh, uh, indigenous peoples in Canada are those who are nearer to the bottom of the income distribution. So they're the ones whose income mobility we should be concerned the most about and the absence of property right for them is a big issue or the weaker property, right? But as a whole, still, Canadians have very strict property rights, even though it's not ideal. So within Canada, by looking within Canada data, we can actually look at the other components of the Economic Freedom Index, uh, notably regulations, uh, barriers that are just due to regulatory hurdles. And what we find is actually that when you look at the income mobility of people in the bottom 10%, regulation is the largest deterrent to income mobility. If you remove regulation, you find faster absolute income growth, rises in relative statuses, and greater proportion of people within a five-year window who actually see income gains. Uh, and I really do mean this by or by like very large proportions. Yeah. So the regulation component, even with, within nations that have, because people could have pushed back. The reason why I say this is people could have pushed back and say, well, everything you're saying is about property rights. Most Western countries have property rights. Ergo, what you're saying is completely pointless. Well, no, within the Canadian data, which basically allows us to isolate for the role of property rights, we can see that regulations are really a really, really, really bad thing. Regulations are generally restrictive of income mobility. Uh, they deter it. They depress it. And and in not only that, but the measure we're using in in that in that sample is actually very weak because the components for regulation are not perfect. If we could add other stuff, like say, and this is another paper I'm doing, this is in in progress with Diana Thomas of Creighton University, where we're using childcare regulation. They'll matter more to people at the margin, which is in this case women, 
women actually are much more affected by the cost of childcare than men are. Uh, so, right. and generally women are, there's a greater proportion of women who are below the poverty line than men. Uh, so if we adjust, say, economic freedom indexes to look at women, at like adding this component that speak to a marginal group a bit more, actually the results get better. Uh, so we did this for the United States. We actually find signs that there's more, there's smaller gaps between men and women, that economic freedom's impact is actually stronger in this case. Once you control for, you add this element to this. So the regulations that we're using are actually a very weak indicator. Any improvements we do actually tighten the results so much more, suggesting that regulation, the case we're making is a very limited case that regulation hurts. Anything that makes it less limited actually means that our results are going to be far stronger than what we depict. So regulations, sorry, over-regulation and uh, unsecured property rights, by far the two most hurtful things to income mobility. And so a first do no harm approach of scaling back government intervention and securing property rights for people will most likely lead to, not most likely, I will, I'm willing to put a very strong weight on this, will actually lead to, I'm willing to make like an unqualified, unconditional statement that it will lead to higher income mobility. Mm-hmm. And on the property rights point too, you, you mentioned yourself that a bunch of people will say, well, you know, like for example, in most Western countries that have property rights, you can own stuff. So whatever, ergo, who cares? That's not important. Well, but I guess that's also like a package of conversation unto itself too, right? I mean, you could have a, a situation uh, in any country, for example, theoretically where, yeah, okay, you're theoretically, uh, you know, uh, de jure allowed to own something, but de facto the police force or the military or whoever could be corrupt and then the person that's actually you know owns that house or is on that piece of land is is not thinking uh long term into the future of their of their own sort of personal life but are just yeah. thinking the next day or the next week is is my stuff going to be around is it going to be taken away you know for, there's terrible things happening in ukraine right now yeah. are people's house even going to be there after like these these are like the property discussion yes. how secure you are is, is a package unto itself right it's not just whether or not you can own yeah, things people are the, the reply I generally get from for property rights, and it actually generally comes from, I think, people who are dismissive of its importance, they will generally seem to assume that it's an on-off switch. So you either have property rights or you don't. There's no depth to the concept. There's no degrees of secureness to property rights. So according to that definition, the USSR, fascist Italy, and Nazi Germany had property rights because you could own technically a house in the USSR. You could own a farm. Uh, to some degree, well, after a certain period, uh, you could own a business in Nazi Germany. You could own a business in, in fascist Italy. Well, yes, but would we call these secure property rights? Right. The state could arbitrarily step in to seize it. Uh, the state would regulate what you could do with your property. Uh, so the depth of property rights matters. So if you regulate what I can do with my house, so say you prevent me from renting or being one of my guest rooms for more than five days a year. Well, then you've regulated, you've you've infringed on my property right. Not a ton. You didn't seize my asset, but you seized some of the things I could do with this asset that I own. Right. If you prevent me from renting my car to someone else or rent tools or uh, if you tax, you're, you're doing a form of takings. You're takings some of my property, not in a material sense where you say I'm taking half of your land. No, you're just taking half the uses 
and the monetized mm-hmm. possibilities that I could have from what you from this land. You've seized, you've taken something. And in Western society, you generally have really high, really deep degrees of economic freedom in terms of secure property rights. But you don't have, there's ways to improve this, right? Just think about cities in Canada that are regulating uh, who can build. So you're regulating what I can do mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, who I can trade with when I buy a unit of land. So what I have to build on that unit of land right. that I've purchased, you've limited. So say for Chinese people now, which is a, one of the most horrible things the Canadian government has done uh, in the last decade is preventing foreigners uh, who like residents to Canada from preventing from buying uh, from buying real estate in Canada, which is one of the most egregious thing I've, this is probably the most jingoistic bullshit. I'm yeah. I mean, not only really they can constrain supply, but within that constrained supply, they're also now talking about yeah. who can actually they mess can. around with that supply. Yeah. But notice the violation of property rights. So right. technically I would still own my house. So let's say I live in Toronto and there's a Chinese student who's really rich and he wants to buy my Toronto house. I don't have a Toronto house. I never lived there. I hate Toronto as a Montrealer. I could never fathom the idea of living in this most horrible city yeah. in Canada next to Ottawa. It's the worst. Yeah. So, so, uh, sorry, Toronto people, but, but you got a guy from Montreal and a guy from Ottawa on this podcast. Yeah, We're not going to talk you, positive you, about you Toronto. Go, you can't. You got to deal with it. You, it's, it comes with the flow. You want it to be a horrible city. You have to deal with it. Uh, but if I sold my horrible house in my horrible city of Toronto uh, and screw the Leafs, uh, the I would still own it, but the new regulation that's been passed that prevents me from selling to somebody mm-hmm. who approaches me to buy it is a violation of my property rights, even though technically I still own the house. Yeah. And, so, and back to income mobility, I mean, the like, property right matters. Yeah. And, and back to income mobility, like these are someone might think like, you know, an abstract or, or like if they just bump into a snippet of our conversation, oh, these are small things. But but all these small things and all these nuances do matter at the margin. I mean, if you take a little vector on a piece of paper and just nudge it like a little bit, by the time you draw that vector out further, there's a big distance between, you know, your baseline and where that vector is going. Metaphorically, what I'm trying to say is that like, you know, regulating someone's uh, what they can do with their room or how many borders they can have in their house and renting to students or what they can do with some vacant space, for example, this could be affecting someone's individual plans for trying to get out of Toronto when they're done living there, maybe moving somewhere else. I know, right? I would understand. You want them to be able to leave Toronto. You don't want them to be locked in there. But but fact of the matter is, is what we talk when we talk about income mobility, regulation really does matter because there is a really decent body of evidence that uh, the the burden of dealing with regulatory compliance on your property So when you want to use your property differently, it is far more burdensome on the poor than it is on the rich. So you're actually, by limiting property rights, by curtailing how deep they are, it matters far much more to the poor in terms of their impact. So, for example, uh, Diana Thomas has a series of – so she and I work together. She's a really, really great economist. Everything she writes is worth reading. I will tell people that. She's at Creighton University in Nebraska. You check out her stuff. Everybody, I, I, there, I've never read one of her, of her papers that I didn't find totally good. Uh, but the idea, one of the things she points out in one of her papers is when you look at the burden of regulations on products, on which product you can use, the, the effect is that it rises the prices of goods that feature disproportionately in the budgets of the poor. So Notice what it means is you're raising real prices more for the poor than the rich. 
you're actually forcing by this regulation that you're taking more from the property that is my income by regulatory ways. It is a form of violation of property rights. It is indirect, but it is a violation of what I can do with my property, which is generate income, but you've reduced the returns from my income by raising prices on what I want to consume more. So you've done some takings. So regulatory burdens are far more dramatic to the poor uh, on by reducing their property rights and regulation as well by connection to those, because this is the way that the mechanism works between the two. So the really two things, if we really care about income mobility, is we understand that the institutional effect are much more important than inequality. And the ones that really do matter within that bundle of what we call economic freedom, if you want to like like dollars, like a, a, a dollar for your buck, what's the expression? Oh, like, like a bang for your buck? Bang for your buck. Thank you. Wow, that took me a second. You want bangs for your bucks, find ways to improve the security of property rights and deregulate uh, uh, as much as you can. The other stuff is good, but these two are going to give you, for every reform you do, are probably going to give you much more positive effect if you mm-hmm. care about income mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. And our time is kind of winding down here and as usual when you and i get going there's a lot to cover we can't cover everything in in this one chat i want to ask you sort of one final section of conversation here before we move to the formal wrap-up because i find it's a very good way to tie up a lot of what we're talking about and maybe can you mention further some of the things in in some of your papers through this question because i've seen you i think you've said it before with me before when we've chatted together either casually or on the podcast and i've seen you definitely doing a lecture so it's actually something you might not even know you do this because you're like me you're very quick talker but i'm actually gonna do something you do for our last question here which is one thing I really like that you do in lectures and chats is sometimes you say what your case is and then you say but if someone wants to prove you wrong and say that what you're saying is BS here's what they would have to show in their own paper for example and this is what the numbers and the data would look like so so tonight kind of put a cap on our conversation you have papers you have work we have a lot of concept we've discussed we have a lot of your findings we've discussed and the kinds of things you've observed if someone wanted to say that everything you're saying is BS what would they actually have to prove like what, what are the kind of stats that they need to show and what are the kinds of metrics they would need to show hey look what I have here just to kind of flip the thought to really crystallize it what would they have to show i would say that i don't think they could on this ground they'd have to do a spin on what i mentioned earlier by talking about peter lindert uh peter lindert's case is that redistribution does have an effect i think he, he's exaggerating a bit how positive it is but i don't i think he's correct that it's positive now what you could basically be able to argue is what are the range of easy redistribution policies that would outweigh the ones because I'm taking, right? So this is the thing that you could argue I'm doing wrong is I am arguing for the best case of deregulation and the best case of, of, of secure property rights. And I'm saying that, well, the best case available in the data is better than the ones for income distribution. Well, you could push back against me and say, well, what, what if we tried the best case for income redistribution, right? Where the state redistributes efficiently. It does something like say, a, a guaranteed income, or it does things like in the United States, the earned income tax credit. So it does like much more targeted measures and it removes like regressive redistribution, like uh, the farm bill or business subsidies. Uh, okay, then I'd be willing to entertain this, but actually if they did that, it would be conceding my point. 
is there is such forms as bad redistribution where people intervene towards the state uh, and try to get these beneficial treatments. Uh, and yes, if we could get ideal redistribution, I'd be happy. But the thing is, is since, and that would be, I think doing that would be a concession to my point, is since I say generally in the public choice, I'm sort of going a step further from what I'm saying, is generally I say that institutions are bundles. You take them as is. They're not Chinese buffets. You can't mix and match. It's a set menu and you're dealt with this. So if, say, you can find a way to create rules of the game, political incentives that give you secure property rights, low regulation, and really well-targeted redistribution, happy for you. Super happy for you. But the reality is I say that generally there's an opposition between them. Uh, there is a tendency if politicians have the ability to redistribute very easily for good purposes, they can do it for bad purposes, and they'll give favors and treatments to privileged political players. So maybe having a like so I'm saying like maybe as a constraint, we could have we could be having a smaller welfare state than what we probably would desire, but it actually it comes with a much larger benefit which has that we have a smaller regulatory state and a smaller trespass on private property rights. So the trade-off as this bundle, as you're picking between bundles, I think that bundle, the bundle of high economic freedom versus uh, redistribution is relatively decent. I would prefer if there was something else. I just, so that was my critique of Linder. Is I think you're imagining a world that cannot exist, whereas the one I argue actually does in the data. Uh, there is cases of what I argue for. Mm -hmm. Your case is like, well, imagine we could do nirvana. Well, okay, if we did nirvana, it'd be great. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be okay if they were able to show ways that at the margin it would make the redistribution case better, which in this case, yeah, I'll have to reweight how much I assign of importance mm -hmm. to the property rights and the regulations versus redistribution. But it would doing that would actually, in a way, concede some of my larger arguments. Right. Fair enough. Which is, I'm happy if you do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And with that, I'm going to move us ahead to our formal wrap-up. So, uh, Vince, we've, we've talked about a lot. It was a great chat. If we can bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on the exploration of the question today, let me ask you, as you know, what is sort of the official last question all the time to let the guest have the last word. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what affects income mobility and why that's important? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave here listening to our chat with only one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what do you want them to take away? In summary, that your tolerance for what is perceived as fair or unfair should it be entirely contingent under rules of the game. If we live in a society where property rights are secure, where regulation is low, where the, the rich are not afforded special access to political games, or at least not too much, uh, then that is fair. Then one where there are people who are able to get payoffs from shaving the rules of the game. Your definition in that term, that fair, fairness is much greater determined by these institutional conditions, the rules of the game, and who makes the rules of the game more importantly than, say, the initial endowments that you are handed in at birth. So my point is generally when you think of what you think is unfair or fair and you want to see, like you say, and you agree with me that it's a mix of 
rules of the game plus initial endowments, you I would like you to believe that initial endowments is not that big a deal. The rules of the games matter so much more uh, by orders of magnitude, by like 10 to 1. That's what I mean by orders of magnitude, far more. Rules of the games are the far greater determinant of what makes something fair or unfair. And if somebody w- wants to take away that from me, I'll be happy to, even if they disagree with my or- my my proportion division of this, like you say, it's two to one or three to one there, or even one to one, I'll be super happy because right now everybody seems to believe that it's 10 to one the other way. Uh, whereas I really believe that what really matters is the rules of the game. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Vincent Geloso, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. It was great chatting with you. It was a pleasure. Plus, go Montreal. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.